0: We now go before the Lord for our prayer of intercession, and this time we ask God um, of what we need for His kingdom and throughout the earth. So let us now go before the Lord and have a brief prayer for those in need. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for today. We thank You that You would invite us into Your heavenly courts by way of Your Holy Spirit We pray, O Lord, that as the Spirit dwells within us, interceding for us, that we, O Lord, would also intercede for one another. We begin, O Lord, by thinking of those who are in the civil government that you have placed over us. Whether we like them or not, we are called by your Scripture to pray for them. And so we pray, O Lord, for the government that you have placed. We pray for our own governor and the various representatives from our district, but also senators throughout our state. We pray, O Lord, that you would write, uh, that you would make known what is written upon their hearts, to their minds. We pray, O Lord, that they would, by their rule, honor you by creating and supporting laws, O Lord, that reflect your holy, unchangeable law. We pray, O Lord, that those who lead us, we think of our own governor, by his, by his policy, all of those within Illinois would prosper and prosper well. We pray also, oh Lord, that you would protect your church even within this state. We pray that if our governor errs in any way, that you would restrain his hand, that you protect your church, and that you'd use your church, O oh Lord, in its prophetic nature to preach Christ to a dying and dead world, including those who do not know you in Illinois. We pray also, O oh Lord, for the mission of the church. We think of the Stangheli family today who serve in Norway and the mission there at First Presbyterian Church that he serves it within. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would use their ministry, O oh Lord, to bring the gospel to Norway and to Norway well. As Europe struggles, O oh Lord, to maintain a faith as, as old as their own countries, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would revive them. And that you'd use this family to that great end. We also pray, O Lord, for those who are lost. We think of those who are lost in the Middle East this morning. We think of those who have succumbed to um, Islamic theology as well as those who believe in Judaism still. We pray, O Lord, for the Middle East. A a place once full of Christian doctrine and excitement now that, O Lord, sputtered away through various other religious Sex. And so we pray, O oh Lord, for those who do not know you, that you would soften their hearts in the Middle East to know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came and conquered in our stead. We pray, O oh Lord, that there would be revival within those churches, O oh Lord, that have long ceased to be. We pray that you would protect the church there, that you would continue to prosper her, and that you would give them boldness even. In the face of death, as many experience that in those countries, we also pray, O oh Lord, for our own church and her sanctification. This morning we pray for our families, O oh Lord. We pray for our parents as they rear their children. We pray that you would give them wisdom, grace, and mercy in this regard, that we would be reminded of the fifth commandment to honor our fathers and mothers, and that and that our families, O Lord, would prosper. We pray for our children as well, that as they grow up in the Lord, they would know not a day apart from you, but that they would also seek, O Lord, to honor their parents and to honor them well. We pray, O Lord, for our marriages as well in that regard, that you, O Lord, would bolster us in this congregation to have a greater love and desire for your scriptures, for you, and also then for our spouses. We pray, O Lord, our marriages and our families this morning that you would bolster them and encourage them and where they are weak O oh lord we pray for fortification we pray also O oh lord for our general assembly as larry scott and myself travel there with colin this week we pray O oh lord that your hand would be made evident upon the commissioners there that the work of the church would continue even in the season of jubilee O oh lord we pray that you would be honored and glorified that we do not merely gather for celebration, but we gather to do your work, the work of the church. As many events over the past six months will weigh upon our hearts and minds, whether that be shooting or the death of various ministers, we pray, O Lord, that even in our sorrow and somberness, we would honor you, that we would be strong in our convictions of confessional fidelity to your scriptures, and that we would have a week of unity Within them, we also pray, O oh Lord, for Joanne Ostendorf as she continues to heal, as she meets with a doctor tomorrow for further healing. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd give that doctor wisdom. We do thank you, O oh Lord, that the infection seems to be, uh, or it seems to remain absent. But we pray, O oh Lord, for your encouragement upon the Ostendorf clan and family. We pray that you'd give Joanne hope and peace and strength. No matter the result or how, O oh Lord, to continue this process. But we pray, O oh Lord, for your bolsting, bolstering. We pray, O oh Lord, for your encouragement. And we pray that even now you present yourself as with the Ostendorfs as they continue uh, this healing process. O oh Lord, you know the various ailments within our congregation, whether they are quiet or out loud. We pray, O oh Lord, that you're with all of us as we seek to draw ourselves. To your kingdom or your uh, to your throne as we worship you this morning by your spirit O lord we thank you for that great privilege it's in christ's name we pray amen i invite you then now to turn with me to the gospel of luke the gospel of luke last week we finished a series in the epistle to the church of philippi and philippians and This week we start a new uh, series, and that will be through the Gospel of Luke itself. Uh, Next week we'll have a brief intermission uh, because of the nature of the assembly and the work therein that I don't think that continuing in Luke would be the wisest either for you or myself. And so we'll take a brief excursus next week, but this week we start in the Gospel of Luke. You may ask, why Luke? Why Luke? Well, Aaron preached through the book of Matthew for some years, and so I thought I would spare another series of Matthew. And then Pastor Jim preached through John, and so I thought I would spare you, John, being the most eminent on your minds, and so that leaves me with Mr. Mark and Dr. Luke. I had grown weary of preaching through short books as an assistant minister in Tuscumbia, and so I almost by nature chose Mark, because I was used to preaching first Peter and First Timothy and Hosea and all those short books. but I decided to be bold, and so we are going with the longest book of the New Testament: Dr. Luke. I think it is fitting, though. It is a fitting passage as our church even now seeks renewal. We have a, a new minister, a new ministry, and it is good to renew ourselves within the gospel then of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what better gospel than the most thorough gospel? of the lord jesus christ this is a thorough fitting book for us here today it is time for us to renew our covenant and we'll so do for the next couple of years perhaps in the gospel of luke but luke is a unique book it is a unique book for us it is a book in the new testament that has a sequel luke being the longest book of the new testament has a sequel that is the second longest book of the new testament in the book of acts Luke's contribution to the New Testament is then unrivaled. The two longest books are attributed to him. You might have been in error if you'd have thought Paul has written the most in the New Testament. It was actually Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke wrote about one-third of our New Testament within his two books. But it is also a gospel unique in its parables, Many of your favorite parables are found uniquely in Luke alone. The good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the rich man in Lazarus, the Pharisee and the publican. You love these parables and they are only found in Luke. Luke is a unique gospel. It is a thorough gospel as well. You know, as you read through Luke, it is written so much differently than any other gospel. Luke and Acts have a very close relation in that as you end Luke, Acts is right around the corner, most natural is. I was thinking about the relationship between Luke's and Acts this morning. Is it one book, two book? It kind of reminds me more than of the Lord of the Rings series. As you've read those books or watched those movies, there's one overarching uh, storyline. The great job of Frodo is to bring that ring and cast it into the mountain fire, and if you'd be disappointed at the end of the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, if you thought that the ring would be cast in that book into that fire. It would take two more books before that event would finally happen. It is one storyline. In the same manner, Luke and Acts are one storyline. I wouldn't be surprised that in our horizon somewhere then, we might take up the book of Acts. I'm just thinking theoretically because of how close they are together. Luke is a foundation of the faith, and it is my hope, then, that as we study the gospel of Luke together over the next couple of years, that we will see it as our own foundation for the faith, a time for renewal, a time as we study together, we will see the great work verified by this great doctor. Well, then, stand with me as we hear from the prologue of this great historian Luke chapter 1, picking up in verse 1. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you." Most excellent, Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Some doctors are more gifted than other doctors. I probably don't have to tell you that. You have had likely a plethora of doctors in your life, and some of them are better than others. When we moved to Illinois a few months ago, actually, one of the most difficult pills for us to swallow was giving up our doctor. That might seem odd to you, but I've not had many good experiences with doctors. And the one we had in Tuscumbia was a true Renaissance man, a truly gifted doctor. Yes, he was a member of our church. We had a doctor's church, doctors and lawyers. You have an engineer's church, and so it's a little different. So this guy was certainly a member of our church but dr parker loved education he was a man that read profusely as he continued in his trade he would keep up with all the most recent medical journals he would go to the conferences and not use them as mere vacation but actually take time to perfect his craft he was a man that worked tirelessly for the people under him he would care even for the nurses that he had on staff in his own practice he was a successful man everyone in our church i think wanted the opinion of dr parker because he was a gifted doctor but he was a doctor with a good bedside manner as well whenever we were in need whether i had rashes all over my body or our child had a stomach bug or ear infection when we texted him our random pictures he has the most interesting pictures of our family he would reply quickly, and he would say, meet me at my doctor's office. Whether he was open or not, his door was open for us. He was a great doctor, but he was more than a doctor. He was also a deacon and a theologian within our church. He's likely a future elder, and his name has been put up a few times in he himself withdrawn. His theological library rivaled my own. In his nice doctor's home, he would take me to his study and around all of the walls were bookcases, towering with the books that I own and would even desire to own. He was a man that read profusely. He was a man that knew his reformed theology, so much so he was the one that would oversee us in my own Sunday school to make sure that we were maintaining good theology as i taught or others he was a man that supported the ministry my ministry i he encouraged us often and even today from alabama as we travel down to memphis to watch the assembly and to participate he from his office will have it streaming all week long you will want to see all the debates he'll want to know all the news he'll be praying for the church he was a skilled doctor but he was more than a doctor. He was my friend. I obviously miss his friendship, but he was an extraordinary practitioner, both in the medical field as well as in the church. That's the kind of doctor we have in Dr. Luke, an even greater doctor, if Parker will forgive me, than even himself. Dr. Luke is an extraordinary man. He is a practitioner by medicine by day and a historian and theologian by night. A man who would use his historical expertise in order to cure doubt with certainty through the work that he has written. I don't know about you, but we've read a preface and you may say, what's in this preface that he's going to preach on? There's not much going on here. As I buy new books, I usually skim through the prefaces quickly. Let me get to the meat and the potatoes of the content of what this author has to say. But Luke is different in his work than the other Gospels. If Mark was the storyteller, if Matthew was the poet, and uh, John the theologian, Luke was then the historian. It, It bears quite simply by the length of the book that we all study today. But he was the historian of the Gospel letters. He sought to... Be this merely in order for the one purpose of providing certainty for all who would read. Certainty of the events that transpired. You see, 20 or 30 years since Christ had died, Luke was starting to draft his letter. In those 20 or 30 years, people were wondering what stories of Jesus were true. What were helpful? What were not true? Was Jesus even a real person? Some might liken him even at that time as Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. They heard the stories, but were they true stories? There was understandable doubt without any written record, any narrative, any historical findings. You'd wonder, I've heard many stories about this Christ, but are they true stories? Well, Luke seeks to settle our doubts then with a historical narrative, a narrative bound in history, extensively researched as we'll see in this preface and prologue. And so my question for you this morning is, do you have doubts with God? Do you have doubts in his existence? Do you have doubts in his word or even in his world? Do you have doubts in the reliability of the scriptures? Do you have doubts this morning? Do you doubt that you're saved? What are this kind of doubts that you have? Well, Luke will seem to remedy. Maybe not merely today in a preface, but throughout all of the texts of Luke before us. To remedy the doubt that we might have. So when in doubt, what we'll learn even today is that the gospel offers certainty in faith. Even when we doubt, the gospel offers certainty of faith. Look down at verse 1. What we learn first is that a certain faith thus needs a certain record. As much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that I that have been accomplished among us. These four verses, whether you realize it or not, are actually one long sentence. One very long sentence written by uh, Luke here. It kind of reminds me, as I sometimes read my favorite Dutch theologians, in their original language, the Dutch would have sentences with 72 to 100 words. And so when English people try to translate the Dutch, they go on and on. Uh, They're unending. One sentence starts on one page and finishes on another, and you you wonder where you started and ended. That's kind of like this first verse here, it, it takes up about half of the page of my Bible. It is a long, preparatory verse. It me- It's meant to give us a historical record. You see, Luke, as he starts in giving us a certain record, starts in a very unique place. Because Luke is the the author to the Gentiles with Paul, he writes like a Gentile, like a Gentile historian. He takes a different approach. He takes the approach of a Greco-Roman historian, like Thucydides, who wrote on the Peloponnesian War, or perhaps even Josephus on the Jewish-Roman War. Luke starts like them. He starts with the same sort of preface. Why does he start with the same sort of preface? Because he is writing A gospel to the Gentiles. The idea is if you want to write a gospel to a Gentile that has historical record, you must then write like a true historian. He writes like a professional. He writes in this way because this is the credible way to write. He has a certain record. A record that would appeal to those who do not believe in, uh, a, a, a credible record to those who do not believe in the Roman faith. And so, what is it take to compile this record if you look down paul or luke i should say i'll probably do that a few times luke says that he has undertaken the work to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished you see luke wasn't the first person to write or talk about the lord jesus christ as the message went forth whether it be matthew or even mark luke had heard the stories he had read many stories about jesus christ and those weren't even the only authors you think if you had witnessed a great event, you would go then write about it. And so there were people all over the world who had witnessed the events of Christ and wrote about it for their own family's sake. And these records were distributed throughout the empire. You think of the word of mouth. If I had witnessed some of the miracles of Christ, the first thing I would do, I think, would be go home and tell my family about what I'd see. And then my family would then share that story like a Chinese telephone with many So what was true? Luke had the great work of compiling the true narrative. That means he would have went out throughout all of the empire asking witnesses, eyewitnesses of the account of what happened in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Taking all of those, compiling all of those together. Luke was like perhaps a smith of sorts. He would take the stories and the records found within all of the Christian faith throughout all of the empire. He would melt them down in his mind, and then he would compile them and breathe out through his paper the account before us. He would melt all those stories down. Think of a good investigative reporter. He would take all the witnesses. He would take all of their pleas, all of the writing. And he would boil it down, he would synthesize it and prepare for the people to receive it. It was a pure work that Luke undertook. It was pure as gold. Its purity was exceptional because of his exhaustive compilation of work. One famous archaeologist, William Ramsey, who uh, grew to appreciate the Christian faith and the reliability therein, he did not believe it at first, but in his archaeological finds he says this, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He is possessed of the true historic sense. He seizes the important and critical events and shows their true nature at greater length. While he touches lightly or omits entirely some of the valueless for his purposes, in short, the author should be placed among the very greatest of historians in antiquity. Luke was more than a mere gospel writer. He was a historian. He was the one that prepared the word for the people. He took all those stories, compiled them all well, and then, like a poet, drafts them together in a cohesive and memorable way. Why does he do this? Well, because many in that day doubted the Lord Jesus Christ. Who would have been surprised? There are all sorts of rumors at this time concerning Jesus Christ and his ministry. The Romans, for example, if you ask them what they knew about the church, they would say, "Oh, those people who cannibalize their own children and eat them every week." They had all sorts of crazy ideas about the Christian faith. And so Luke, as he writes, seeks to 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 counteract those random weird stories, those rumors about the church. And so for the Roman doubter, Luke was presenting a gospel that would solve some of those weird, crazy Loch Ness Bigfoot stories. But for the Jewish doubter, he would seek to connect then the Messiah of the Old Testament to the New, to show how he was the one who would come to save those who are in sin. But even for the modern doubter, Luke has something for us Today, Luke offers a reliable record. Over the past hundred years, the sufficiency of Scripture has come under great attack in the church and throughout the world. But what we see here is a reliable record. But I think even the more modern doubter, even as archaeology has given way and has proven the historicity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the modern doubter struggles with exclusivity. Certainly, this record is a good record, but amongst many records— whether it be a, a gospel that is fabricated and false or another religious claim, we struggle with exclusivity. But what, Paul, what Luke points to is an exclusive Christ with a certain record. And the Bible alone reveals that. So when in doubt, the gospel offers certainty of faith. It, a certain faith needs a certain record, but then, importantly, a certain faith also needs a certain source. It has to have good contents Verse 2, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. In verse 2, we see then that Luke goes to great lengths to find the right sources. First, we have to begin with the person of Luke. Who was Luke? Who was Luke? Well, you can know for certain that Luke is actually the author of this work, even the earliest uh, uh, writers of the, on the New Testament admit Luke is most certainly. That is not the case for every New Testament work. You think of the book of Hebrews, who wrote Hebrews? Some say Paul, others say Apollos, and even others say Luke. I think one of my New Testament professors believed Luke wrote Hebrews. Well, Luke is, the, the gospel Luke is not disputed. It is certainly written by Luke. There were no forgeries, no misunderstandings. But who was Luke? Well, Luke, by his name, is a Gentile. Lucas made plain. He is an educated Gentile, if I haven't communicated that already. A Renaissance man who loved learning. Medicine in that time often carried with it many other honors and privileges. In Luke's case, this means he was a historian also by trade. He was gifted. And you may not know this, but Luke was a companion, a very close companion with the Apostle Paul. Going on many of his very various missionary journeys with the Apostle. You wonder how Luke got some of the stories as it relates to Paul and his missionary work. It was because he was with Paul. Paul and Luke were like Batman and Robin in many regards. They were a fantastic duo. I told you that Luke wrote most of the New Testament, or has written the most in the New Testament. Paul is very close behind him. And with those two authors, over 50% of the New Testament is written. These are very capable and influential men in the early church. Luke and Paul, a dynamic duo, a Batman and Robin, if it were, two great men who served the church. And you notice both of their work is viewed not even in with Judaism, but to the world outside. Luke and Paul, a great Gentile. Paul says this of the physician, Luke, the beloved physician. Paul loved Luke, and Luke loved paul and they did great work together and part of that work was research if you look at verse two the eyewitnesses and the ministers are the source of luke's writing where did paul get all these stories were they just random people who had heard something who had heard something no luke had two main criteria for who he interviewed those who witness Christ and those who are ministers of Christ sometimes when we think of the gospel and the New Testament we get so focused on the Apostles that we forget that Jesus actually had other followers hundreds of followers think of the feeding of five thousand thousands of followers And so Luke had the great job of going person by person, story by story, hearing the stories about Jesus from those who had been with Jesus. How does Luke talk about Jesus in the womb and John the Baptist in the womb? It is because Luke went to the mother of Christ and interviewed her. He got her story, got her narrative. How did she know? How did he know that Jesus leapt and John the Baptist leapt in the womb? It was because... He had interviewed the people that had experienced it. He saw the eyewitnesses. He met with them. And he interviewed them. But even more than that, he had the ministers of the word, which would include at least the apostles, but others as well. Probably even greater, those there, there are rings to the apostolic tradition, the inner ring being the three with Jesus himself, the outer ring being, or the middle ring being the twelve. There was an outer ring of hundreds of ministers that would go forth after Christ had died. These are the ministers referenced here. Certainly it would be Paul, Barnabas, and Peter and the twelve, but it was much larger. Luke went to them, got their story. And what did he do with that story? In verse three he tells us, It seemed good to me, having followed these things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you. You see, Luke was a true Presbyterian. He had an ordered account created. He didn't vomit all of his research upon us, but he thought thoroughly. He compiled thoroughly from the sources and wrote a chronological, thoughtful gospel for us. The Gospel of John in some regards is thematically outlined as John seeks to deal with themes, not so with Luke. Luke is very stringently chronologically outlined, and he is thorough. There, there is a section in which Jesus is, tra- is traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem that spends 10 chapters in the Gospel of Luke. Almost the entirety of Mark just on that pilgrimage from Galilee to Jerusalem. Luke is otherworldly. And he keeps your mind and pages turning. One of my favorite biographies that I've ever written was the one on Martin Lloyd-Jones by Ian Murray. I commend it to you. If the two-volume set that is over a thousand pages is too much, they have a a more consolidated one. I would recommend it, though, because Ian Murray, in that book, keeps your eyes glued to it. It is so captivating learning about the ministry and life of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I commend it. I, I... encourage you not today but tomorrow buy a copy of this biography and I remember the last chapter it's entitled in dying he worshiped and I remember reading that on the deathbed of Martin Lloyd Jones weeping with those who wrote the letter and the book it was just so perfect I wept because the book was over and I had binged it for the past three days but I also wept because it seemed that I had lived Martin Lloyd Jones life with him Ian Murray did a fantastic job in that work. He kept me in the book. He showed me an accurate picture of the life of Lloyd-Jones' his ups and his downs, the pretty and the, the not-so-pretty. I remember weeping because of how engaging the author was. Luke is that same type of historian as Ian Murray, one that wants to engage you thoroughly with an orderly account. Though Luke is not an apostle, He grounded all of his work in that tradition of the apostles. When I was in college and seminary, some sources were better than other sources. I heard friends sometimes referencing Wikipedia and such, and I'm assured now that Wikipedia has gone its way of AI, we'll hear people writing and using AI as their own research. Some sources, though, are better than other sources. Some of my favorite researching works in seminary on the Sabbath and well as the Lord's Supper were the writings that I had the most time to invest in. Whenever I had the time to invest deeply into a work. I would get all the sources, all the sources I could muster from Reformed Seminary's library. I'd gather them in front of me, and there was a vindicating moment in my research that as I read another thorough commentary on the Sabbath or on the Lord's Supper, when you started to see one source reference another source, and you knew quite intimately what he was referencing, you had come to the horizon. You have done your work. You know what the Sabbath is all about. You know what the Lord's Supper is all about. You know it so well that you know the sources that are referenced by the source you are reading. A thorough collection of sources. Not all sources are equal. But you know that you have used sources well when you're so acclimated with the story that it just becomes second nature. Um, I think of Luke as he was doing these interviews and perhaps he's talking with someone about the feeding of the 5,000. He's like, oh, I know that story. I've heard that story from three or four other witnesses. Does it end like this? Are there any differences that you had? He was so enthralled within the historical work of finding the sources that he began to knew them well as the stories would be told. There's a certain source. You can have confidence in the New Testament and in the work of Luke because of his sources. He is a historical theologian that searches for the truth, and he uses good, certain sources. But lastly, and probably most spiritually, a certain faith needs a certain purpose. Why? Why did Luke write? Well, in verse 1, we see that he wrote to explain the things that were accomplished. You see, what Luke was writing about was not merely a historical outline of the life of Jesus. He was seeking to outline the things accomplished by Jesus. Well, what did Jesus accomplish? He accomplished salvation for his people. He came and lived a lowliest state as the Son of God, lived a sinless life that we might have life in him. He came to accomplish salvation. Luke draws early in his epistle or in his gospel back into the Old Testament with the various prophets, connecting both him and John the Baptist with Elijah and Elisha, there is a massive connection that Luke seeks to make with the Old Testament. Even when the Old Testament is not in the purview of those Gentiles, he seeks to connect it. Why? Because there was a purpose for his writing. He was seeking to accomplish something. He was seeking to accomplish and reveal what the good news for the story was. And who asked him then to do this great work and accomplishing? We'll look at verse 3 at the end. Most excellent Theophilus. Who was Theophilus? We read a passage earlier today in the, uh, the Acts of the Apostles in, verse, in chapter 26. And you'll notice that Luke uses that term most excellent twice most excellent Festus, and then here, most excellent Theophilus, he uses that phrase for a particular purpose, and that is to reveal to the reader that the person who patroned, uh, gave him the money, who subsidized and published his work, was of high regard and esteem. He was a man that had probably a lot of money. Think of the research work of having to boil down the gospel and use the witnesses therein, He subsidized all of Luke's work, this great, excellent Theophilus. He was likely then a Roman governor of sorts. Most excellent was a phrase that in any town throughout the Roman Empire, you'd see on a government building for the main leader, the head honcho within that community. Most excellent Caesar, most excellent Theophilus, most excellent Festus, most excellent Agrippa. This was a title that was used almost solely for those in government positions. But who was Theophilus? Perhaps a pseudonym. His name means person that is a friend of God. Perhaps it is a governor trying to hide his identity. I I don't know. all speculation. But we know that he was in high regard within perhaps even government circles. The Theophilus here then was taught the gospel. And he asked and commissioned Luke then to go out and to verify everything that was taught to him. I want to know the truth. I want to know, are these stories true? Can I have certainty that the Jesus that came is the Jesus that died for me? That's what Theophilus desires. We see in verse 4 that Luke achieves that end. As he has done all the analysis, I write this that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the ancient world, that sort of phrase would be used by every historian. You've heard the battle of the Peloponnesian War. You've heard of the Jewish and Roman War. Well, here is so that you can have certainty. I write this work, this historical work, that you can be certain of the Christ that came. That is why Luke writes, and that is why Luke also writes Acts. So you can have certainty of the acts of the apostle, of the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, The old approach to discredit the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ was to discredit that he ever existed. I remember when I was in high school, my friends who didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ would say, oh, that man never existed. Well, archaeologists, as Ramsey even notes, has concluded that, well, actually, he probably did exist. And so those who doubt the faith, those who have doubts for the faith no longer question whether jesus exists now they question this last point here what was the purpose of jesus existing to the modern doubter then christ was born but he wasn't who we say he is he was a good teacher a mortal man someone to learn from but he did not come to save an example yes a savior no Luke writes not merely then for the purpose of revealing the authenticity of Jesus' ministry to the ancient, but also to show the purpose of Jesus coming even to the modern man, to dispel any doubts that we might have that Jesus came for a certain purpose. And our work then is to determine whether this purpose is true or not. Jesus did come as the Messiah. Do we then believe that he was that Messiah, that he claimed himself to be. Luke writes with a purpose. He wants to offer Theophilus and you a certain faith that you can say yes to Luke. He is the one that came to die for me. He is that Old Testament Messiah promised in the prophets, realized in the Christ. He's the Christ of the prophets. He is the purpose for Luke's writing. He's the purpose of providing what Christ, has accomplished in our lives. When in doubt, the gospel offers then a certain faith. It offers a certain record, a certain source, and a certain purpose. Dr. Luke points us then to a greater physician. He points beyond himself to the one who is the Jesus Christ, the one who died for his people and calls them to himself. Behind this great gospel then is a greater Christ. A Christ that would come in a lowly manger who would then live a perfect life offering all sorts of miracles to show that he was the one that was promised to validate his ministry. Who would die then raise and be ascended. Who would commission the apostles to go to the ends of the earth doing miraculous works to show that they were of the same thread and cloth of Christ himself. Luke offers us a certain gospel with a certain Christ to offer us a certain faith. So as we study the gospel of Luke over the next couple of years, is my hope and desire then that you could could use your doubts and cast them upon Christ himself. Cast your doubts upon him. Cast your doubts on the record upon him. Hear from the great and eminent historian of who our Christ was cast upon him. Will you close in prayer with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great physician, the one who would come and live a perfect life and die a sinner's death that we might have life in him. We thank you, O Lord, for the Gospel of Luke as it is revealed to us here shortly, more thoroughly. But we thank you, O Lord, for the tedious nature of the work of compiling and drafting a historical account A godly, inspired, historical account of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.